Hi, everyone, and welcome to Season 2 of the God and My Girlfriends podcast. I'm your host, Marsha Ramirez, and I have some amazing special guests this season, and we're going to dive into some topics that will help us all learn how to nurture our spiritual lives, nurture our friendships, and nurture ourselves. I'm so glad you're here. Hey, friends, it's Monday, September 13th. And we have a very special episode today. It's a little different than what we usually do, but maybe one of our most important. As many of you are well aware, COVID-19 has made a big resurgence in much of our country and in places all over the world, really. Sadly, the amount of misinformation floating out there is staggering. And last week, After having several pieces of information sent to me that turned out to not be true, of course it was sent on social media, I realized that I wanted to ask some trusted voices in my life to come on the podcast and help us all get to the real information about this deadly virus and the vaccines, the newest treatments, the latest quarantine recommendations. I mean, we talk about Everything, the accuracy of tests, mask mandates, the latest data on how the virus is transmitted, we cover a lot. So this episode is a little longer than usual, but hang in there with us, please, because I think you'll find it very worth your time. Now, you might be surprised at what my guests have to say. I know I was surprised about some things that I was so sure of, but found out I was wrong. Which brings me to the topic of researching these things ourselves. I see a lot of people giving information online, mainly on their social media accounts, and they preface it by saying these three big words that supposedly give their information credibility. You know, the three words, I researched this. Now let's be honest, none of us are really doing research on any of this. Well, at least most of us aren't. Maybe a few are actually diving into trusted medical sources, but most of the people I see, and I've done it too, when I say I researched this, it really only means you looked it up on your biased news source or website, or you asked someone else who has the same opinion that you do about it. But if you're really interested in looking up information on trusted sites, I will be listing in our show notes some of the resources that my guests suggest for truly credible information. So before I introduce my guests, I I just have to say a couple of things. First off, I'll admit that I'm weary and my empathy meter is feeling super low right now. So I apologize if I come across a little one-sided in this interview. Yes, I am a believer in the vaccine and have been encouraging everyone to get it if they are able. I did want to stay as neutral as I could during this interview, though, but as I was editing it yesterday, I could clearly hear the bias in my voice in certain parts of this interview, so I'm sorry about that. My frustration is coming from feeling like the reason most people aren't getting the vaccine is because of the incorrect information out there that they're getting. And I know people personally who have expressed regret for not getting the vaccine after ending up in the hospital and almost dying from COVID. And I know two individuals who did pass away, all because they believed the vaccine would harm them worse than COVID would. As one of my guests points out in this interview, 
The hospitals are filled with people dying of COVID. They are not filled with people dying from taking the vaccine. All that being said, no matter which side of the issues you are on today, I really believe you're going to find this episode full of great information. And it's presented, at least by my guests, without bias or inflammation. All right, now to my guests. My first guest is my friend and neighbor, Amy Jean. Amy is a certified physician assistant currently working in orthopedics and sports medicine. She has 10 years of experience as a PA, which includes time in family practice, orthopedics, urgent care, and hospital medicine. She spent five weeks treating COVID patients at Harlem Hospital in New York City during the height of the COVID pandemic, and she was very instrumental in helping Mike and I both through our own bouts with COVID. This girl is a smart cookie, and you'll see that she really knows her stuff, and even more importantly, truly has a heart for helping people. I love and trust Amy, and I'm so glad she agreed to come on today and talk through these issues. Amy is definitely a trusted voice for sure in my world. Also joining me today is my longtime friend, Susie Brewer. Susie is a registered nurse with over 30 years experience in ICU, infusion, and community nursing. She has been monitoring COVID exposures for employees at Vanderbilt University Medical Center since the beginning of the pandemic. Her current role includes education, testing, and vaccinations. She's a worship leader and a mother of two teenage boys, and she lives in Nashville with her husband, Jason, and their sons, Jack and Sam. Again, Susie has proven to be a trusted resource for me, full of information over the last couple of years to keep me abreast of all the current COVID trends, and like Amy, has a heart for people and their well-being first and foremost. I'm very grateful to have her voice and experience here with us today. Now, although you can hear my bias come out a bit in this interview, I do want to say that one of the reasons I picked Amy and Susie for this interview today is because I know neither of them have political agendas. They are not picking and choosing information to fit either a liberal or a conservative narrative. They are simply here to state what they are seeing in the medical field, and I do appreciate that. Also, I've known both of these women for several years, and I know I can trust them. I know this because I've watched how they each consistently live their lives overall rooted in truth and with integrity, and that goes a long way with me. They have proven themselves to be people I can trust in relationship. And honestly, like I've said many times, I would rather get information from people I actually know and trust rather than from biased news sources, websites, or God forbid, social media. Find people in the field you're wanting information in, like in any area. That's why it's so great to have a diverse group of friends. They each bring different areas of expertise into your life, and that's just invaluable. Okay, I've babbled enough. Y'all get ready to get some info with my friends, Amy Jean and Susie Brewer. Hi, Susie. Hi, Amy. Thank you so much for being here with me today. Thank you for having us. Thank you. You know, I, uh, I just told our listeners a little bit about both of you and how you were such trusted voices for me during my, my husband's COVID journey. You know, one of the things about both of you, I've known you both for a long time and 
I know I can trust you, not just because you're in the medical field, but because I've watched both of you live your lives with in truth and integrity and love. And so that's, that gains my trust. You know, when I see someone living like that and both of you two live that way and I love you both for it and I appreciate you both. And uh, so I was so excited when you both agreed to come on with me today, because this is such an important topic that we're all dealing with right now. Um, It was the lead story on the news last night. They were saying, you know, here in Tennessee, Tennessee is like leading the nation in COVID cases right now, which is really heartbreaking. But, you know, after I was doing a little bit of research and I was seeing that, you know, it was, let me see here, uh, April 8th of 2020, when we all started panicking, 31,000 cases a day, and we were all in a panic. Um, that's, I think, about when the country started shutting down, and it ebbed and it flowed through the summer and the spring, and then it started taking off about this time last year, in the fall of last year. It really, if you look at the charts, it just started going crazy, and it hit a high January 9th of this year, 300,000 cases a day. Then the vaccine started taking effect. It started all going down by the summer, and on uh, July 3rd of this year, we only had 2,000 cases in the nation, 2,000 in a day. We are now back up to 191,000. And so the trajectory is not looking good. So I put out a little word to a lot of our listeners here in the community, and I got a lot of questions from them. Um, And we're going to go through as many of those as we can today and get both of your expert opinions on this. And, um, you know, who knows, you two may have different opinions on things you may not both agree, but it'll be interesting to see where we all land on this. Before we get into it too much, though, I do want to ask you both just on a personal level. I'm going to start with you, Amy. How has COVID-19 like affected you and your family, like on a personal level? Well, we don't have enough time to go into, (laughs) (laughs) but in a nutshell, um, I lost my job because of COVID-19 last year. That was the first kind of casualty in my life. Um, I worked in outpatient surgery, um, elective orthopedic surgery, and the shutdown of all the elective cases last year um, at the end of March, um, the practice I was working for uh, cut half the staff. So across the board, cut half the staff. They didn't furlough. They didn't, they just said, we have to part ways. We don't have the money to keep you. And never did I think during a global pandemic, I would be without a job. Um, as in the medical field, right. (laughs) Physician assistant. I've been a physician. This is, I've been a physician assistant for 10 years and, um, I love what I do and I love helping people. And I was like, wow, I don't have a job to go to. And it made me nervous, obviously. Um, but it also took me to New York just a week after I lost my job here in Nashville to work, um, and treat COVID patients at, um, one of the hospitals there in New York. And that has just changed my life. It's in so many ways I can't really fully go into, but, um, it's made me a better person. Um, it strengthened my marriage. Uh, so in terms of that COVID has done some good things for me, but mostly not great things. (laughs) I remember when I heard you were going up there, I was like, Amy, oh no, I was just so nervous. Amy and I are neighbors, by the way, too. And I was just so impressed that you went like, I'm going to go serve. I'm going to go serve up there where they need me. 
and you took that job loss and you were like, that just, again, shows to your heart, you know, that you are in, you're in the medical field because you want to help people. That's where your heart is. You, you want to get to the information. You want to get the truth. You want to get the facts. And then you want to take that and help people get better. And how long were you in New York? Five weeks, five weeks straight. I signed on for a three week. They, they made you basically say, will you stay for 21 days? And then you could extend depending on the need. Cause they didn't know the need. This was April one, mm. April 1st. Of wow. I was on a plane to New York. There were six of us on that plane and no one made us wear a mask. If that tells you how early on. Right. It, it, was. it was. So, mm. but that's when they were like talking about putting bodies in refrigerated trucks. Oh, yeah. Like they had, they had trucks outside some of the hospitals. They didn't the one I worked at, but they had trucks outside. They, you know, people were dying fast enough for ventilators to come open for people to go back on ventilators. But um, those decisions and those things that you hear about, you know, making those decisions of who gets what, that was a real everyday thing for us there. So Mm. in terms of it affecting me, you know, mentally, I'm still in therapy for that. Um, So um, I'm really, really glad that I went, but it definitely has affected my mental health and my um, emotional well-being you know, in a, in a big way. Yeah. But it also caused you to dig in and want to know more about this beast, right? Yes. And it caused me to um, kind of focus on that's what's important. Yeah. Um, not get lost in the minutia of um, maybe politicalization. Is that the yeah. word? <laughs> Politics. Yeah. I don't like them. Yeah, <laughs> so. yeah. I appreciate that about you too. You stay out of that. You're just like, let's get to the facts, right? <laughs> I'm a very fact. I like, I like the facts and I don't like, I love that. Don't. One way, sorry, one way or the other. I love that. And you, Susie, how has COVID affected you and your family on a personal level? Well, first of all, Amy, let me say thank you for your service. Um, the people who went to New York and other places that were hotspots in the big beginning of the pandemic were the true heroes of the pandemic because we didn't know what was going on. We didn't know what a hotbed it was. And you truly risked your life to take care of people. So I appreciate mm-hmm. you. Um, I also lost my job. Um, not officially, I wasn't told you don't have a job, but we had no work. Mm-hmm. Uh, I work for corporate health and wellness at Vanderbilt and we do, uh, corporate health screenings for employees and employers around middle Tennessee and outside of Tennessee as well. And we do flu shot clinics and things like that. So of course, nobody wanted us to come into their place of business and do health screenings during the pandemic. So we lost our work. And so I, I had to make some changes and adjustments and fortunately was able to work with occupational health and coach and counsel people who had been exposed to COVID and monitor those cases and um, work with the team here at Vanderbilt. So it's been very eye-opening and being able to see things from the other side um, and to hear the stories day in and day out. My patients aren't ICU sick. Mine are outpatient at home, you know, um, trying to decide what they need to do about quarantine and things like that. Obviously was at home with my kids who were learning from home and that was a big adjustment, but it was also a really great time for our family. Um, and like Amy, it definitely made me take stock in what is important and ignore all of the noise, because there's a lot of noise out there in healthcare and in politics in general. I'm also very neutral. I don't like to get in the middle of those things because I don't think that healthcare really has a political, it shouldn't have politics shouldn't play into that. Um, You know, we all signed on to take care of people because we have a heart for the people that are sick and that's it. 
And so we don't make our decisions about who we take care of based on their political views or how they, um, you know, what they think. It's, it's all based on our heart for them. And so it did, I think a lot of people have probably gotten to that place where the pandemic has made them feel a little bit more um, take stock of what's important. And so that's been, that's been the biggest thing I did. I do have four friends who lost a parent during the pandemic to COVID. And that was a big personal hit because it wasn't just somebody that I heard about. It was somebody that I know really well and love and care about. Um, I have extended family members that got really sick with COVID that were in the hospital that are recovering now. Fortunately, no one in my immediate family has been sick. So we've been very fortunate with that, but, um, yeah, it's very close to home. It's very close to home. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I don't know really anyone that hasn't, Mm -hmm. um, been affected by it on some level. I think part of the uh, problem, I was just looking at the map today and the South seems to have, seems to be the the hot bed of COVID right now, Texas, Kentucky, Tennessee, Alabama, Florida, Georgia. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you're living in another part of the country and you're not experiencing, you're not seeing it around you very much. And you're hearing about this. I'm sure that's part of the confusion because people's opinions are, uh, they come from two things from the information they're being fed and their own experience about it. Right. So, and I think our own experiences probably are the biggest thing that, you know, so if someone says, man, I had COVID, it was like a bad cold. Like, what's the big deal? I mean, we actually had a friend of ours call us after they had a, uh, an easy bout with COVID. And they said, are you sure you guys had COVID? <laughs> yep. Yeah, we're pretty sure. Oh, pretty I sure that's what it was. Diminishes your experience, you know? <laughs> yeah, I know it really does. And we're like, oh, but, but that's their, like, they're like, mm-hmm. they're listening to probably news information and certain sides of things that are saying it's not a big deal. And then in their experience, it wasn't a big deal. So they're like, not a big deal. <laughs> so let's get to some questions here. Um, number one, a lot of the questions were based on vaccine and on treatment, but I do want to just start real quickly and talk about COVID in general. And let's talk, I'm going to go with you to you first, Amy. So what we experienced for a long time was an initial, um, strain of COVID, right. But now we are experiencing a, a different strain, just like the flu maybe has different strains from year to year. Correct. Yes. Yes. So viruses can't exist outside of hosts. They have to have a host to live in. Um, bacteria can exist, you know, by itself in the soil or whatever, but viruses have to have a host. So we are the host Um, and they mutate and that's what they do. They have always done that. Viruses have always, always, always mutated. That is their job to, so their adaptation response to survive. And that's what this virus has done. So when they talk about variants, it is just a little bit different form of the same virus. Susie, do you see more variants coming? Yes. Um, viruses mutate hundreds of times and, and that we already have lots of variants. We just don't talk about all of the variants that are out there right now. Delta is the one that's getting the most press because it's the dominant strain here in the United States and in a lot of other countries. So yes, there will be more, more variants. Um, the hope according to the epidemiologists that I speak with at Vanderbilt is that eventually it will become more like the common cold. That is the hope and the prayer of everybody in the medical community is that this virus 
mutates to a weaker form and doesn't have the power and the strength that Delta does right now. Delta is just a lot stronger. It's a lot more virulent, it's a lot stickier, hangs around the nose a lot longer. And so you to spread. You, yeah, you can, you can spread it so much easier because you have so you have a thousand times more virus in your nose than you would if you had it with the alpha strain. And so you can contaminate more people if you're out in the community just by breathing. So um, it's a lot stronger and a lot smarter than the original variant that we saw in the beginning of the pandemic. And comparing it to the flu, like some people say, oh, it's just like the flu. Um, the flu's a virus, correct? Mm-hmm. Um, how is it n- not like the flu? <laughs> I'm not sure how to explain <laughs> that because that's I've heard so many people just say, it's just like the flu. We're just going to have it around all the time and we're probably just going to need to get vaccines. Is that is that accurate? I think it's hard to say. It's not the flu. I'll tell yeah. you that. Yeah. And I always think of when it comes to like down to a science perspective, I go back to the basics when there's questions like this of viruses are viruses and they have their own, you know, way of changing and mutating and hanging around. So things like hepatitis C is a virus, you know, HIV is a virus. Um, we've had coronaviruses around for ever a lot of like the little kids colds that you see every year when they go back to school those are coronaviruses we just don't call them that we call them upper respiratory infections we call them the common cold this one was so profound because it did it acted differently and it affected its host differently Mm -hmm. so um when you go back to the basics yes this virus is going to hang around But as Susie said, we hope that one day we'll just call it the common cold because it's not landing people in the ICU and as contagious as chickenpox and all those kind of bad things that we think about when we think about coronavirus now. So what steps is the vaccine part of that becoming a like a common cold? I mean, what, what are, what steps is the medical community taking to try to make it into something less deadly actually (laughs) um i don't know that we can make it less deadly but we can make it less spread Mm -hmm. and control it a little bit and that's where the vaccine comes in um one of the questions i know you sent was about herd immunity yeah i know that the numbers were we needed 60 to 70 percent of people to be immune to it to have herd immunity Mm -hmm. Uh, maybe higher than that now but the goal so, is kind of like chicken pox, like enough people had it. Then we had a vaccine. Now you don't really see it anymore mm-hmm. that much. Now, what is herd immunity though? Susie, can you answer that? Herd immunity is just when enough of the population is immune to that virus that you can effectively say that there's not a risk anymore. So either through vaccination or natural immunity, they've either caught the virus. So right now we have millions of people that have had COVID. So you have to count those people in your immune numbers. And then you also have people who have been vaccinated. I think we're at 170 million, maybe 175 million. I haven't looked at the latest numbers, mm-hmm. but we're, we're getting up there. I think we're around 85% of the adult population has been vaccinated. So if we've got a lot of children and teenagers that haven't been, and then we have a few that have not been able to get the vaccine or refuse the vaccine for whatever reason. And so the, the goal is to get as many people 
immune as you can so that the virus doesn't have a host anymore. It doesn't really have anywhere to go and mutate and change into something that's even scarier than Delta. That's, you know, we don't want that to happen either. Right. We, we want it to stay as benign as possible. And right now that's not where we are. So that's why we're, we're really pushing for people to get vaccinated if they can. So let's talk about the vaccine for a minute. Um, I was with a friend recently that said, I, I'm, I, I haven't gotten the vaccine. And I said, um, she goes, don't, don't be mad. And I said, no, I'm, I'm not mad. You know, I said, I'm just curious what your reasons are. And she said, well, you know, this one's not, di this one's different. It's not really a vaccine. Um, and there's still, you know, they still say it can probably change our DNA. So let's just start right there. What is, is this, is this a real vaccine? I, I mean, compared to other vaccines, Amy, we'll start with you. Can you break down what, what this is? Yeah. So I'm not a vaccine expert by any means, but um, there's vaccines have been around for a while right? Very thankful for them. Polio is almost eradicated from the world thanks to vaccines. These are vaccines. They're just maybe a little bit different than the traditional ones that we've seen throughout the years. I can speak to the mRNA vaccines. They don't change your DNA. They teach your cells to recognize the virus and specifically the proteins on the outside of the virus to fight them off. And that's the whole purpose of that immunity whether you have the virus or you get the vaccine, your body recognizes it for the next time you're exposed. Cause we assume there will be a next time yes. because it's so prominent. So um, no, I can confidently say the MRNA vaccines do not change your DNA. DNA. Okay. They are the, the <laughs> MRNA that teaches an MRNA stands for messenger RNA. Okay. And so that just means it's bringing a message to the cell. It teaches the cell what it looks like, how to fight it. And it's destroyed. So cool. no, it's not fundamentally. Okay. Changing. So that's a myth we've just busted. It does not change your DNA. So now they're talking about boosters. Susie, do you know much about the boosters that we'll talk about? That? I mean, is it, is it a booster? Somebody just said yesterday, oh, it's not even really a booster. It's just a third shot. It's a third. Yeah. They're calling it a third dose. So booster is a term that gets thrown around and it's loosely, it just makes sense to call it a booster because we're talking about boosting your immune system, but we've had vaccine series for a long, long time that come in threes. Um, hep B is one of those. If you're working in the healthcare field, you understand that you get a hep B shot. And a few months later, you get another one. And, and so they spread those out. There is some data that shows that waiting that six month, eight month period between dose two and three does cause the immune system to say, oh, this is a little bit more serious than I thought. So I better pay attention. Um, so there is some data and there are some new studies coming out of Israel that show that the third dose has been more helpful in protecting people from COVID than just those two doses. Um, we are seeing a little bit of what they call waning of the vaccine efficacy. So there's a little bit of that. There's also Delta happening at the same time. So it's, it's kind of hard to know exactly what's going on there, but there is some evidence that that third dose is going to be very helpful. That does not mean that we're going to get a booster shot every six months for the rest of our life. And that's what people are afraid of. That's what you hear a lot on social media. And when you hear people arguing back and forth with one another, I apologize if that makes a noise. I don't know how to make that. Sound. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, just in the middle, in, you know, real life. Yeah. Um, 
but um, I forgot where I was. Oh, so a lot of people are afraid that they're going to have to have a booster every six months for the rest of their life. And, right. and the, the argument is that, you know, it never was about COVID. It's about control. And they're just going to give you a shot for the rest of your life. And um, there's no evidence to support that at this point. Um, okay. All the epidemiologists that I talk to say that our hope is that we, the reason we're talking about boosters right now is because of Delta and other variants. We want to get everybody through this pandemic phase that we're in right now that is proven to be more deadly and overwhelming our hospital systems as much, if not more than in the beginning of the pandemic. So the booster shots are going to help with that. That doesn't mean again, that that's going to happen forever. So the hope is that, no, we won't have to do that. The hope is that that will eventually become common cold and we won't have to do that. If we do, then we'll face that then, but that's not what we're looking at at this point. Cool. I did have a, a, a listener ask how long they have to wait. Are they supposed to wait eight months before they get the third shot? Is that yeah, what at least 20, right at least 28 days is what they have as what they have to wait, but they're mm-hmm. recommending eight months between the second dose and the third dose. If you're healthy, if you're not. Yes. If you're healthy. Yeah. Immunocompromised patients are eligible to get it right now. So if you have severe immunocompromise, if you're on a medication that suppresses your immune system for any reason, high dose steroids, if you've had an organ transplant, um, those people don't typically mount as, as good of a response to the vaccine as someone who has a healthy immune system. So it's important for them to get that booster and obviously talk to your doctor about it before you do, but immunocompromised patients are a little bit more at risk right now because they may not have had mounted a great response to that first and second dose like we would have. So if you're on a medication for RA or any of those that suppress the immune system, those are people that can go and get the booster shot right now. I think by the end of September is what they're saying that it's going to open up to, yeah, the 20s open up to everybody. So at that point, it'll be, they'll look at your card and they'll say, has it been eight months? And that's pretty much how they're going to do it from what I understand. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. I was looking at whether I should try to get a third because um, we're getting ready to go on tour. And I was like, uh, we were all talking about doing everything we could to keep ourselves safe. Um, I'm very lucky that my boss is going to, to great lengths to keep us all as safe as possible, implementing a lot of safety precautions for us all so that we can hopefully go out and not only us stay safe, but the people that come see us stay safe. Mm -hmm. But I was like, wow, should I go try to get a third, you know, my third shot and just, but I mean, of course I've had COVID and I'm double vaxxed. So I'm thinking, (laughs) and it was only April. So April, May, June, July, August, I've only had like five months. So I guess I'm a little early to go try to get, get another one, but hopefully um, was that just well, April that you had COVID? No, April is when I got my first. Oh, I okay. I was thinking it was last year. It was last year. We got it in at the end of June of 20. Oh, wow. Yeah. And my husband was a, what they kind of call a long hauler. I mean, he had residual long-term symptoms for months. He really only has started feeling kind of like himself again in the last three months or so. Oh, wow. It was a long, it was, it was hard. It, it really did a, a number on his respiratory system mm-hmm. and uh, just had a struggle recovering from that and may still always have little bouts of it. I mean, his doctor said, and maybe you guys can speak to this. I mean, that sometimes uh, it does enough damage to your respiratory that you, it's almost like you get adult onset. They call it COVID induced asthma. 
So like for the rest of his life, he may have little bouts of mm-hmm. respiratory issues from the damage. Is that, does that sound accurate well, to both of you? Yeah. It really wreaks havoc on the tissue. You got to think our organs are, our lungs are heart, our liver, everything are made up of tissue. And if you have damage to that tissue, then it can cause yeah. effects, whether that be scarring or an inflammatory response. So that certainly can happen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one more thing on the vaccine. So, um, we had a specific question from a friend of mine whose father has cancer. She wanted to know, should cancer patients get the vaccine? Um, and I'll just kind of open that up in general. Are there some people that definitely should not get the vaccine? I think each case is individual, um, but cancer patients are considered to be immunocompromised. I mean, that is a, across the board, people who are treated for cancer or have cancer are considered immunocompromised and they're because their body's body is fighting another battle really. And, um, giving them a second battle to fight would be quite hard on their system. So I, I know that the CDC says, yes, that cancer patients should be vaccinated. Um, they would be considered in the booster group coming up. Um, but I always recommend if there's specific concerns or if they're on something like a corticosteroid that may affect their ability to mount immune response, then they talk to their oncologist before getting the vaccine. And that's always an okay question. They will, you know, they're, their oncologist is going to know their case the best. I agree. <laughs> good, good. I know um, my boss who had COVID early on in 2020 and then uh, actually had Guillain-Barre syndrome was triggered, but that can be triggered from any virus. The way I understand it, it could be triggered from the flu, like I said, any viral. And it just so happened that COVID triggered it in, in him. And he had a really long journey back to health. He still, you know, struggles with some weakness in his legs from the paralysis that he had from the Guillain-Barre, but they initially didn't want him to get the vaccine because they were afraid it might re-trigger his Guillain-Barre. And so he waited a while as much as he wanted to. And, uh, you know, he wanted to get the vaccine, but he listened to his doctor until his individual doctor said, I feel confident now after they've done more and more research. And, you know, as the time has passed, I believe it's safe for you to go get it. And he did. And he's, you know, it's been great. So um, he was like, oh, I'm so grateful. You know, before we move on from the vaccine, is there any other myth or anything else that either one of you want to address about the vaccine, about its safety or anything else? There's one thing I would like to say, and I saw it, it's more of like an anecdote. Um, but for those that have concerns just to validate their concerns, Mm -hmm. but also to know we live our lives in terms of risk versus benefit, Mm -hmm. whether we drive to the store or we take a Tylenol, it's risk versus benefit, right? Right. Think about that on a daily basis, but that's really how we make decisions. And the risk of getting COVID is so much higher, um, than the, what we are seeing in terms of risk of the vaccine. So the patient, you know, our hospitals are full of patients with the virus and not patients who have side effects from the vaccine. Mm-hmm. So if you can think about that, and again, going back to practicality, um, I can would just like to kind of validate those concerns, but also say, look at the reality of the situation. And um, it's grim right now for those who do have um, COVID and for the general population, but those that are vaccinated, we're not seeing them coming in droves to the hospitals, which is great. I love that. Yeah. I love that. And, and on that note too, you know, Marsha, you and I were talking about this the other day, 
when I, when I talk to people who have concerns about the vaccine, my first question is, have you talked to your doctor about it? And if the concerns are valid, if the concerns are, you know, I have had an issue with a vaccine in the past, or I'm worried that it's going to make me um, sick for a few days and I'm not going to be any, anything like that that's a, that's a valid concern, then they've probably talked to their doctor about it and they're still a little bit nervous. The people who have really um, more of the myths that are floating around out there, the people that are concerned because of something that they've read online or things like that, nine times out of 10, they have not talked to their doctor. And so my question to them always is, if you would go to your doctor, if you got cancer, you would go to your doctor, if you needed surgery, you would get a second opinion. If you didn't like that opinion, like you would go to your doctor, if you didn't feel well, and you have that doctor for a reason, why haven't you asked them about the vaccine? You know, that's my question. And usually it's because they don't, they don't want to hear. And so that's where the struggle comes in is just getting people to find that trusted source. We always want you to go and speak to your primary care physician, the person that knows you best, that you see that has all of your medical records, that knows your health history. That's who needs to be advising you on whether or not you get the vaccine, not social media. So please, I beg of you, if you don't hear anything else that we say, please reach out to your doctor and ask them whether or not you should get vaccinated. That's the person you need to be speaking to. I love that. Mike and I were just talking about that because I, um, I have another friend that said she went to her doctor this past week and she said, normally her doctor is just kind of vibrant and lovely. And he comes in and she said, he walked in and he looked like a different human being. His eyes were tired. He looked exhausted. And she said, you know, are you okay? And he said, I am just so tired of trying to convince people that they should get this vaccine. Mm -hmm. And he said, I literally had a lady in my office yesterday crying and saying, I can't get the vaccine or I'll go to hell. Mm. It's not the first time I've heard that. No, it's not. Really? I just, I can't understand. Like, Mm -hmm. is is her pastor till? I don't know. But uh, he said, it's so hard to combat what, what they're hearing from certain circles, certain from their hearing from, you know, um, social media, like you said, you know, and if, if they trust their doctor enough to go for anything else, like, okay, I trust you. I've, I've got strep throat. I'm going to trust that you give me the right thing to cure my strep throat, or I've got whatever they have a broken <laughs> arm. I'm going to trust you to go. Yeah. But they won't listen to them about the vaccine. That's what I don't, I don't understand. Yeah. I think uncertainty is scary. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I've known as scary and uncertainty is scary. And that's what I've seen this whole time and kind of what each of these really, as I was doing the Mm -hmm. looking up some things for the questions that we were going to talk about, I was just thinking Mm -hmm. not knowing is the scariest Mm -hmm. thing for people. And I think the social media and the things online that people see are presented with such a, this is what it is. Mm-hmm. Cause it's people who don't really have any consequences for saying those things. Right. Okay. So I have a consequence. If I tell someone in my practice, right. Do this and it makes them worse. The patients are going to come back to me. They're going to give me a bad review. They're going to complain to my manager, whatever yeah. people online, they don't have that. So they can right. give information without, with, with, you know, 
total abandon of, of consequences and um, people mm-hmm. like that kind of certainty and confidence, yeah. mm-hmm. even though it's a false certainty and confidence. So mm-hmm. um, it's hard. It's hard to kind of, you feel like you're in this mm-hmm. constant fight with patients right, and you don't want right. to fight with patients. You don't want to fight with people, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I can promise you from a provider's perspective, we don't get anything extra yeah. for giving, giving the vaccine. Or like right. There's no extra money. There's no extra accolade. There is just right. there's a thing in the chart and you get the dose and you right. feel good about yourself and then that's it. <laughs> so yeah. don't and think we're out for anything. <laughs> and that's another reason to trust your doctor over mm-hmm. some of these talking heads on TV and mm-hmm. social media because they have an incentive for you to come back and listen to them. Not only do they not have a consequence, but they have an incentive for you to continue to come and watch them and to like their page and to give them comments and to boost their algorithm. They do. Yeah, right. So, so you're, you're, you're boosting them. And by, by listening to their advice, your doctor has no skin in the game except to see you well. So whoever, if you're seeing your, your PA, your nurse practitioner, your doctor, whoever you're seeing as your primary care provider only wants to see you well, they get nothing from the vaccine. You hear that. I hear that in social media. Oh, they're getting I've had patients tell me that. They're yeah, like, there's like no. money from Big Pharma. I'm like, oh, <laughs> yeah. I promise you I've never seen it. I wish. No, we don't see a penny of that. So no. Right, right. I know there's some distrust there, you know, in 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 the system from some people. And it makes me sad because I know a lot of people in healthcare, doctors, nurses whatever. And every single one of them is there for the right reason. They're not there to get kickbacks from big pharma. They're there because they felt called (laughs) to get into healthcare. They want to help people. And, um, so, uh, yeah, that's frustrating. I have one more thing I want to say, I forgot about the virus and that, I mean, about vaccine and that is in dealing with, with pregnant women. Um, my daughter-in-law was actually Mm -hmm. hesitant to get, uh, the vaccine at first. And she, she told me, she said, you know, I've, I've been sent some information from some people that said it might affect my fertility. And so she goes, I just want to do a little more research. And I said, you absolutely should, you know, your vaccine should be something that everyone makes, you know, like you said, talk to your doctor and make a decision on your own. You shouldn't feel pressured into it. And so I supported her in that, but she, she did a lot of research on her own and then kind of came to the same conclusion uh, that you just said, Amy, about risk versus benefit. She was like, you know, I don't see anything that says there is a fertility problem. You know, it's like, there's that thing too. It's like, oh, you don't know what it'll do for fertility. Well, there isn't any sign that it will cause a problem. And she said, you know, after doing best research I could and talking with my doctor, yes, I want to be able to have another child, but I also want to be here for the one child that I have. And so I'm going to go get the vaccine. And she decided to do that. But that led to talk about if you're actually already pregnant, is it safe to get the vaccine? Um, I was doing uh, in looking at this stuff because I don't really see pregnant women on a regular basis in my practice. Um, But um, do you have some friends that are currently (laughs) pregnant? We've had this conversation a lot. Um, Studies have shown no effect on fertility. Um, and there are different kind of sides of the story that say, yes, get a vaccine if you're pregnant. No, don't. Um, there was a concern for a similar protein that the vaccine worked on also being present in the mm-hmm. placenta of pregnant women. 
but there, there was a concern because there is a little bit of overlap, but there was no, there has been no evidence of this being affected in pregnant women who have got the vaccine. So again, talk to your OB if you are pregnant, um, because you know, the risk profile is different for each patient. Yeah, cool. So basically, once again, talk to your doctor and get their advice. Hi, friends. We're taking one more quick break just to remind you that this podcast is sponsored by God and My Girlfriend's Ministries. We are a registered 501c3 nonprofit that supports women in all walks of life. Women helping women become everything that God created them to be. That's our mission. We have online book clubs, live events, weekend workshops and retreats, a single mama's ministry, and also this podcast. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, get involved in any way with any of our programs, or maybe even help support us financially by donating, you can do all of that on our website, which is godandmygirlfriendsonline.com. You can also find us on any of our socials. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and even Twitter. So reach out when you can and let us know how we can serve you or maybe someone that you know. And now, back to the conversation. Okay, we're going to jump off the vaccine and we're going to start talking about some treatments now. Uh, Like I just said, we're getting ready to go on tour. And my boss said that he had a couple of doctors tell him that one of the things that he could do to stay healthy and to avoid it is to do this uh, sinus rinse because they said it, uh, the virus gets up in your membranes or your nose. And if you can just keep that cleaned out a couple of times a day, it might help you from getting the virus. Do you feel like that's true or false? I don't think there's any data, but I think logically it, it sounds, I mean, my, I, Jamie, my husband uses the sinus rinse every day. He does He's done that for years. He's done that for years because he has a deviated septum. And if he gets any kind of infection, common cold, flu, whatever, his symptoms are just so much worse and they last a lot longer just because of the anatomy of his nose. So he uses a sinus rinse every, every day and it does help him just kind of flush all that out. But I don't know if there's any specific data that says, Oh, this prevents COVID-19. But that would help with any sort of virus. You're saying like anything that's like in your respiratory system. I mean, all of those things that that's it's, it keeps it moisturized. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's not a bad idea, but I don't think you have to like religiously do it twice a day forever. Right. 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 Okay. But that is something that might be helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, vitamin D have you, I've heard that that's something that you should really increase if you want to try to avoid it or if you, or if you have it, sorry, this is talking about medicines. If you have it, do you, have y'all found any, uh, research that vitamin D actually helps? There have been a couple of studies with uh, the African-American population because, um, people of color tend to have lower vitamin D if they can't absorb uh, as much vitamin D from the sun. Okay. So they tend to have lower levels of vitamin D. Actually, a lot of us have mm-hmm. low vitamin D levels. Mine are tanked. I had, I mean, I've been on vitamin D for a long time and getting your levels higher over like 50 definitely make you feel better and give you more energy. Um, it's, ex- it's very important to the immune system. So it is important to have a good vitamin D level. Um, but the, the studies are inconclusive. They really are. There's not a lot of data that says that it's effective in preventing COVID or treating COVID. Does it boost your immune system and give you a better chance at fighting off viruses and bacteria? Probably. Um, but there's no real hard and fast data that says vitamin D will in any way treat COVID. Agreed. 
So it's something that you can add to your arsenal if you want to, if you just want to, you know, that's, that makes yeah. you feel better to boost your vitamin D, add some vitamin C in there. Yeah. We, mo most of us need it and yeah. it's kind of hard to get it too high. There are some risks of it being too high. We don't want to get it over that toxic level, but it's really hard to get your level up. So, um, most people can take vitamin D and be just fine. Um, but again, that's something you want to talk to your doctor about, but the data is yeah. still kind of inconclusive on that one. Right. Um, what about the monoclonal treatments? Uh, I'm hearing a lot about the monoclonal. I actually have had a couple of friends that had COVID recently and went in and had really good results from the monoclonal treatment. Uh, can uh, Amy, can you speak to what that exact actually is and what, whether or not that's working in the medical field right I, now? I'm not, an, again, not an expert on monoclonal antibody treatments, right. but right. you know, they are being used. Um, and even the local hospitals here in Nashville have infusion sites on campus that are, um, it's, it's using, it's being used more for like outpatient, um, COVID treatment. Susie, correct me if I'm wrong, if you guys are seeing something different. Um, but again, the data is not hundred percent. We just haven't had time to have the data accumulate on a lot of these treatments. I mean, you think about it takes years and years and years, decades to get data on some things and there's just not time. So, um, some studies show, and most of my research has been from the national Institute of health, um, NIH website. Um, and it is a great resource. So I would encourage anyone who wants kind of the the nitty gritty of things to go. And they actually have a whole page on monoclonal antibody treatments, how they work, you know, the rationale, the rec level of recommendations, basically research data has level of recommendations of, yes, we recommend it, B, we're not sure. C, there's, we really aren't sure. So um, these are, these don't have the highest level of recommendation, but they are being shown to work some, in some cases. So it's, again, it's individual, you know, basis, but um, we are seeing it used. And just like we, we don't really know um, with 100% certainty who's going to end up having a really severe case of COVID, mm -hmm. we don't really know who is going to have a really good outcome with monoclonal antibodies. It's because we're talking about the immune system and everybody's immune system is so individual that, you know, unless you have a really, you have a high risk factor like diabetes or hypertension or you're immunocompromised, we know those people are high risk. Even pregnancy is a high risk. But other than that, we're seeing people in the hospital right now that are unvaccinated, that are in their 30s and 40s, that are on the ventilator that don't have any underlying conditions at all. So that's kind of a crapshoot. And it's sort of the same thing that we're seeing with monoclonal antibodies. Some people have really, really good results almost immediately by the next day. And some people just have a so-so response. So it is available. Um, it is something that you need to take within 10 days. After 10 days, it's not really effective day four or five is about when they recommend that you, that you have it. So if it's something that you, if you've uh, contracted COVID and you have a positive test, it's something that you can look up online and see what's available in your area. Um, but yeah, again, it's, it's, it's kind of hit or miss on that one. Those are injection or IV infusion. Yeah. Treatments. They're not right. That's what, um, the people that I know actually just went in on an outpatient basis <laughs> basis mm -hmm. and did an IV infusion. Yeah. Um, what about hydroxychloroquine? Has that been proven to be of help at all? What are the stats on that? So again, I've been looking at the studies, it's iffy. So I know 
when it first started, when I was in New York, that was being used with azithromycin. Um, and I'm not sure if it's still being used because I'm not, I don't actively treat COVID patients right now. Um, but it really hasn't been shown to make a significant difference in outcomes or shorten the course of the illness. So whether that means the patient is hospitalized or on an outpatient basis, um, again, a lot of the things you're hearing are anecdotal um, and people really like personal stories and really like to hear one person's experience when the data just hasn't panned out. So according to the NIH, the studies have not shown that um, it doesn't mean it's going to hurt you, but it, it's one of those things that patient to patient, it's overall, it hasn't shown benefit or, or detriment, but patient to patient right. be helpful. Yeah. And that, agree, Susie? I do. Yeah. And that, and that brings me to something else that we talked about the other day, and that's getting that valid information, like Amy was talking about, going to the NIH website. Um, the Cochrane Library is another place that looks at studies and takes into account the bias of the authors of the study. Do, do these authors have a vested interest in the outcome of this clinical trial? Um, you hear people say all the time, do your own research. <laughs> well, do your own research to most people means look at a Facebook post and then read the article that they posted. That's not yeah. really research. Research is so complex and we have standards in this country and across the world on how those studies need to be designed. Most of them have to be placebo controlled. They need to be randomized. They need to be double blinded and they need to be peer reviewed. They need to be reviewed by other physicians and scientists that look at them and say, that doesn't really add up, you know, that the science doesn't support your conclusion. So let's go back mm -hmm. to the drawing board and try again. Mm -hmm. So when you hear anecdotal evidence, my cousin had COVID, she took hydroxychloroquine and she was better in two days. Well, she might've been okay in two days anyway. We don't really know because there's nothing to compare it to. We don't have a control group of people who didn't take hydroxychloroquine. And even if they did, they're not the same people. So you, studies have to be so well-defined and they have to be monitored for, for fraud, for bias, for anything like that. So anecdotal evidence, just because a doctor gave somebody a hundred, a hundred patients ivermectin and none of them died, that doesn't necessarily mean that ivermectin kept them from dying from COVID. Those hundred patients may have not died from COVID anyway. So there's, you have to have control groups. You have to have things to compare it to, and you have to have a good, pool of people to study. Um, so again, just for anybody that's listening, I, I would just say, get your information from trusted sources that just have a vested interest in presenting the information. And there's no bias on either side. They're not trying to convince you of anything. They're just saying here, here's the study. That's where, that's where I would go and read that study. Well and, you know, that's, uh, I would love to put some links in the show notes mm -hmm. of, of some websites that you guys would, would uh, highly recommend if people want to try to do their own research. Mm -hmm. And I, I talked a little bit about that in the intro about how, you know, you hear people say, I've researched this and this is how it works, you know, and uh, really none of us can, none of us are scientists. Right. Well, you know, m most of us, let's, you know, mm -hmm. and so that's why I, I don't feel like I can truly research anything myself. Like, I don't know where to go. I go to people like you guys that I feel like are researching because that's your business to research it. Like, that's what you guys are doing for a living. And I trust you guys. So, um, but you mentioned the like NIH website, what is that? Um, and it's very, um, 
I mean, I'm looking at a table right here talking about chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine and or azithromycin selected clinical data. And it lists seven, eight, nine studies, what their, what type of study it was, the age of the patients, the, the other things like um, they have clinically suspected, mild or moderate COVID, duration of symptoms. What are the limitations? The study's not blinded, the study. So it, it goes through all of those critical you know, being critical of the studies and, and in any medical education, you get, you have a whole entire, you know, course on how to look at a research article. Yep. I mean, that is a huge part. I mean, that's is something I do on a regular basis in terms of looking at tre new treatments or old treatments that maybe don't work anymore or mm -hmm. um, because a study can be a really bad study. <laughs> like you can have really terrible studies and that, that have five people in it and don't tell you anything, but they can mm -hmm. be published. And so just because they're published doesn't mean that it's great research. Um, mm -hmm. So I really liked how the NIH actually broke everything down and has sections on each thing and the rationale be be behind things. And then it gives you the studies and their, their citations. You can go read it. I don't want to read all of these studies. There's probably a lot, so mm -hmm. a lot to read, but mm -hmm. it does give you the interpretation. Hydroxychloroquine does not decrease in hospital mortality in hospitalized patients with COVID-19 when compared to standard of care, which means not hydroxychloroquine. That's one study. There's like 10 of them on this table. So, you know, and that's just selected data that has been pulled and, and good research that has been done. So if you want to find a, I don't know, I, I found it and was like, wow, this is really like well done. And it's more um, in depth than the CDC website. Okay. So um, I would definitely recommend looking at that. That's just been helpful because it pulls from things like Cochrane Review and, um, you know, the, the other vast um, library of research that we have. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Was there another website you just mentioned? You mentioned NIH, and what else did you say, Susie? Uh, Susie mentioned Cochrane. Yeah, the, the Cochrane oh. the Cochrane Library. Um, they they're they're a database, and they they do a lot of um, comparing studies and looking to see if there's a they have a bias tool that they use to rank the amount of bias that may be behind a study. If um, the confidence level of whether or not they think that that particular study is uh, valid based on the design of the study and things like that. So um, if all that information is uploaded to NIH and that may be the best place to go to get all of that. Cool. I think of it kind of uh, like shopping for a car. Yeah. Does that make sense? Like you yeah. look at a car and you see all these, you know, data and, and safety ratings and all of these things, but your individual experience may vary. Yeah. Does that yeah. Individual experience may vary. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Um, before we get off the medicines, well, I have two other questions. The first one though, is you mentioned ivermectin. That's a big one I've been hearing a lot about. Um, I have also been hearing people say that, I mean, there, there were actually people I know going and getting it at like tractor supply. And then other people were saying, oh no, you, you can't take the kind meant for animals. There's actually a different kind. And someone posted it, Avermectine. It's got an E on the end. They said, this is for human form and this is what is working. Um, what, what is y'all's experience or what do you know about whether or not that is a, a real uh, treatment for COVID, Avermectine? Is there a human form? Yeah. Okay. Um, for a long time. I mean, it's, it's an antiparasitic drug. And what is it? Has it, I guess there's been no no studies on it, right? That's what I'm guessing yet. Well, there've been a lot of studies on ivermectin. It's actually, excuse me, antiparasitic, but mostly for malaria treatment. It's been used. That's what hydroxychloroquine too was initially for malaria. 
Mm-hmm. So, um, and other like tropical diseases that we don't really see much here. Okay. Um, it's not approved by the FDA for the treatment of any viral infection. Um, okay. Studies, again, studies show different things, um, but some studies have shown that maybe people are clearing the virus a little bit quicker, but then there's another study in the same vein that shows there's an increased risk of death with ivermectin. So again, according to the NIH, no, it's not recommended for treatment. Actually, the American Medical Association just came out with a statement that that recommends against using ivermectin um, or warns against it. I, didn't, I wasn't able, I didn't have time to read the statement, but I did see that it that they recommended against it. So it's not, mm-hmm. you know, technically recommended at this point. Okay. Susie, have you seen anything different? No, exact same thing. And, you know, that, that data is very inconclusive as well. Um, a lot of anecdotal evidence on ivermectin, not as much in the way of um, really well-designed and well-controlled studies that show it. Um, and there are some risks and dangers to taking it. It's not without side effect. And you absolutely don't want to get the animal version. Please do not go to Tractor Supply and I mean, I've seen videos of people putting a little paste on the end and just kind of eyeballing the dose. It's, it's not safe. So please don't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, especially if it's not proven to be, um, they did have one study that showed some antiviral properties that it would help keep the virus from replicating, but that mm-hmm. was an in vitro study, meaning that it was done in a lab. And in order to make that correlate to humans, it would have to be a really, really high dose of ivermectin. So um, we haven't seen really good, strong evidence in humans for using that for uh, prevention of COVID or for treatment of COVID. So basically, um, it just all goes back down to what you said. It's like, talk to your doctor and see what he recommends mm-hmm. you try. Mm-hmm. And he can monitor you for side effects. Okay. If he thinks you should try ivermectin or yep. hydroxychloroquine or whatever he or she recommends mm-hmm. for you. Um, that way they can monitor your side effects or right. whatever. And now, um, so is there, is there a treatment that they has been working across the board? I would say supportive care, mm-hmm. meaning anti-fever medicines, um, oxygen. Those are the things that, you know, we know work in terms of treating symptoms. If you think about having the flu, there is a, um, you know, a anti-flu drug, but not everybody takes it. And again, mm-hmm. I don't mean to correlate this with the flu, but you can have the flu and not take any medicine. Right. Yeah. Just depends. So, if, you know, your case, Marsha, um, did you have, I mean, I don't need to ask personal questions, but did you have to take any medication in terms of symptom? I always think of viruses as we treat the symptoms, right? Because there's no right. to treat. There's not like an, for bacteria, there's antibiotic. You get rid of the, the, the bacteria infection, but there's not really anything that's will get rid of COVID. Right. Yeah. Right. No. And you know, um, I've talked about this. It's so interesting because Mike and I both had COVID at the same time. He started showing symptoms about three days before I did. We had complete opposite symptoms. I had a very sore throat, developed a high fever, um, you know, chills, sweats. I would have thought I had, you know, strep throat or something. Um, Lost my sense of smell and taste. And then, you know, all of that took about a week to get through. Well, I didn't get my sense of smell back for about six weeks. 
And Mike says, anyone knows that I married him. I never had a sense of taste. (laughs) 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 It's like my, um, and then the fatigue, you know, just Mm -hmm. lasted for weeks. Mike, on the other hand, never ran a fever, didn't have a sore throat. His was all, um, just, he, you know, he just felt like really crappy. And then he started developing this respiratory thing that went down into his chest. And it was weird because the symptoms would sort of morph. You'd get through one thing and then you'd think, oh, I'm feeling better today. And then you would get something else. But we had really different, um, you know, experiences with COVID. But speaking back to your question, you know, I took Tylenol for my fever. I took I did start taking some vitamin D because I was like, you know, we started taking, I got the emergencies and started yeah. putting them in my water. I was taking, um, again, supportive, know, drops. right? Yeah. Supportive care. Supportive exactly. Care. And that's, yeah, it sounds bad when you say supportive care, because it sounds like you're not doing anything for people, right? Mm-hmm. but, um, but it's a virus, like, right. You said, so you yeah. can't like take an antibiotic mm-hmm. to like knock out the bacterial infection. It's mm-hmm. a virus, just like a cold or a flu where you just sort of supportive care and you just have to get through it. Mm-hmm. Um, just like when our kids were little and we took them to the doctor and they would say, I'm sorry, it's viral. Yeah. All we can do is, you know, help yeah. them with their fever and give them lots of fluids and things like that. Yeah. So it's, it's the same concept. We don't, we don't have drugs right now that, that are good antiviral drugs that are working in every single patient. We do have mm-hmm. some that are, you know, working here and there and they, they, most of the time we're going to try to throw the kitchen sink at them and see if things will work, but nothing that is really proven. I guess it's sort of like, you know, because all of our bodies are different. I mean, I, I think about, I've had several people that in my life that have had cancer and one person says, Oh, they want me to do surgery and then radiation and then chemo. And then the next person's got the same cancer, but they're going to go chemo first and then surgery and then ready. And I'm like, you know, it's like the treatments are just, I guess, you know, the cocktail has to be prescribed for that individual person or even diets, you know, one diet works for another person, another diet works for another person. We're all just different. And I guess the bottom line is treating COVID has to be a one-on-one case-by-case thing too, just like everything else. That's what I'm hearing from you too, right? The uncertainty, right? Yeah. 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 I mean, I feel like that's the beauty of medicine a little bit is that it's an art and mm-hmm. as well as a science. And so mm. here's my nerdy side coming out. So I apologize. I love that though. I love <laughs> I, that. I mean, even in graduate school, I had a classmate that was very kind of a black and white thinker. And she was, she looked at me one day and said, so this is really not black and white. No, no, <laughs> it's not ever. Mm-mm. And I love that part of it. But some people find that really um, intimidating and scary. Yeah. Mm. And I think that's one of the things that we're seeing, like you were talking about earlier, Amy, that the uncertainty and the unknown, when people say, well, the science is settled. (laughs) Science is not ever really settled. You know, (laughs) we're always evolving. We're always learning. I mean, we, things that I did 30 years ago when I first started out in nursing are unheard of now that, that people look at me like I have three heads when I go, we used to do this in the picky. They're like, you did what, you know, because we don't, we, we, we learned a better way. And so, yes, it's, it's very, uh, very much a nuanced uh, thing. We don't, we don't, there's no, there's no black and white in medicine. There's some things we feel really certain about and confident about, but that doesn't mean that there's not room to improve and grow and change. It's always going to evolve into something 
a little bit different. Yeah. I mean, I, we've seen that with this, just um, how the, the, uh, the information has changed. I remember the night that Mike couldn't breathe. He, he was, he was having so much trouble breathing and I didn't know what to do. And he was laying on his stomach in the bed, just trying to give his lungs, you know, some room. And he was just sweat covered, just trying to breathe. And I called Amy and I was just in tears. And I was like, I don't know what to do. They had tried to send me uh, some medicine that was supposed to put in a, in a nebulizer, nebulizer, but they didn't prescribe me a nebulizer. And I called her and I'm like, I've got this medicine and I need to give it to him. And they say, put it in a nebulizer. What's a nebulizer? She She goes, oh my gosh, they didn't prescribe you a nebulizer. I was like, no. And she goes, oh no. So anyway, we went through this whole thing. And then finally she said, Marsha, don't be afraid to take him to the hospital. If he needs help to breathe, she said, and this was only in June, you know, like three months after it all started. And she said, they've already started making changes in treatments. They're not just going to throw him on a ventilator. They've learned there's several steps that they're going to do first before they put him in a ventilator you know, but don't, cause I was scared to take him to the hospital because I'd heard all these stories of people dropping off their loved ones and not getting to, you know, see him again. And it was pretty scary when I took him down there, walked him up to the front doors and the lady just put her hand out and said, you, you can't come in. And she said, give him a hug. Oh, Marsha. And go, I know she goes, give him a hug and go sit out in your car. And I will call you with updates. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was awful. I mean, you know, cause I was like, is he coming out? And I just went in my car and I started calling people I knew and asking them to pray. And my friends were like, we're coming down there. And I was like, you can't come can't down come here. here. I've got COVID. <laughs> like you can't sit in the Wait. car with me. <laughs> <laughs> and, and there's people around here, you know, she, it was, it was the worst night. It was just awful. And, um, So, yeah, I mean, that again, you know, that's our experience. Everyone has their own experience, but, um, uh, thankfully they were, they were able to like get him, you know, at the time they were so full too. They didn't want to admit you unless there was no other option and they were able to get him, um, stabilized there in the ER. And I was able to bring him home several hours later, but yeah, that just showed me, you know, even in that little time their treatment options and what they were learning about COVID. And it's just continual, you know, just continual new information. We're flowing with it. And um, I just, man, you two both that what you guys do on a daily basis to help people be better. I just appreciate you both so much. Um, were there any other questions that I sent you guys? We, Cause we, we did send some ahead of time that you wanted to address that I missed at all. We're, running out of time here. Um, just real quickly, there's a, there was a cup, a little bit of confusion about, um, quarantine and about the, uh, rapid antigen tests. Yes. So yes. we are using this, the gold standard is the PCR test. It's the swab in the nose that they send to the lab. That is the gold standard, but there are rapid tests available. Just know that the percentage of correct positive response is around 70%. Okay. So Um, there's a lot of false negative, meaning that you could have COVID and that test doesn't pick it up because it's an antigen test. It's not looking at the entire virus. So um, it's not to say that they don't work. 
is just to say, hey, if you're using it as a screening tool, it might be good. But if you want diagnosis, let's do the PCR. That would be what most yeah. people would recommend. Do that PCR swab. Um, the home tests are, they've got a lot of ad press as far as um, efficacy. Um, you've, you've got user error in the way that you're doing it and you're doing it at home. They may or may not be um, accepted by the health department or your school, if you're doing those for, to get back into school. Um, mm -hmm. As far as quarantine, if you're in close contact with somebody for 15 minutes, cumulatively over a 24 hour period that tested positive for COVID and you're not fully vaccinated, then you need to quarantine for 10 days from that date. Um, if you develop symptoms, usually within three to five days, we want you to get tested as well. Um, and then those people who are vaccinated um, and you come into contact with someone who is uh, COVID positive, especially if you live in the same home with someone, we want you to get tested between days three and five. Most people say day five is a little more accurate. Um, just to rule out a breakthrough case or an asymptomatic case, they recommend that you do that. Full quarantine is 10 days and day zero is the day that you start having symptoms or the positive test date if you don't have symptoms. So we go by the symptom date if you have symptoms. If you don't, we go by the test day. That's 10 days that we need you to stay home and away from other people, self-isolate from anyone in your home if you can. Um, and then if you are severely immunocompromised, obviously you're gonna wanna talk to your doctor about how long you need to quarantine because it could be a little bit longer if you have a severe, um, if you're severely immunocompromised. If you've had COVID in the past 90 days and you're recovered, you don't necessarily need to uh, quarantine again if you are exposed to COVID because it's assumed that you are still, um, you are still covered. Um, and that's also the only time that we need to worry about waiting on a vaccine is if you've had uh, monoclonal antibodies, we recommend you wait 90 days. And if you've had COVID in the last 90 days, you don't have to wait those 90 days. You can get it as soon as you are healed and well and feel better from COVID, you can get the vaccine. But some people want to wait those 90 days or get closer to the end of those 90 days before they get the vaccine. And in most places, employers are fine with that. And they'll allow that for an exemption if you've had COVID. So just to clear up some confusion, because I know that quarantine has changed as we've learned more about the way that the virus is um, transmitted and we've learned more right. about who can who can give it. Obviously, we are seeing breakthrough cases with people that are vaccinated, but the majority of adults in America are vaccinated. So when you look at the denominator, it's a very small percentage of people that end up in the hospital and end up sick. They are getting they're testing positive and staying home. Um, so there, there can be those breakthrough cases. So even if mm -hmm. you're vaccinated, if you've been exposed, we want you to be protective of those around you, wear your mask, stay home, don't expose others, because even though you're vaccinated, you could possibly transmit. The evidence is pretty clear at this point that the duration of time that you can expose other people is shorter if you're vaccinated than if you're unvaccinated. So in the beginning, those first few days, you have the same amount of viral load, but over the course of a week, the unvaccinated person can still contaminate and infect the vaccinated person. The ability to infect people drops off within a few days. Wow. So there's, there's that to consider as well. It's another, another reason that vaccines are helping to mitigate the spread of the Delta oh, variant. Wow. That's good information. That's great information. And um, I've noticed that Vanderbilt has been putting out like a weekly chart mm -hmm. to show how many people are, in the hospital and very sick that are vaccinated versus unvaccinated mm -hmm. to show that it, it actually really, really is helping. Mm -hmm. um, masks, do they help? Yes. 
Mm-hmm. They do. They do. They do. I mean, you can look at the numbers with school starting right now. You can look at those that have, have held fast to the mask mandate and those that have not, and you can see the difference in the number of cases and you can see how quickly it's spreading. You're not going to get rid of every single case with a mask, but you are going to slow the spread and mitigate because the virus has to have a droplet of aerosol to travel on. It has to have that. And so if you can stop some of that with the mask, you're going to slow down the ability to spread that virus. So yes, they do help. A lot of people don't believe that. A lot of people, because there's confusing information coming out in the beginning, we were trying to protect healthcare workers like Amy who were out there who had no PPE. And Mm -hmm. so we were not recommending it in the beginning, but it, the, the, I think the data is pretty clear at this point, they do mitigate the spread Mm -hmm. of COVID-19. And so they are helpful, not necessarily a cloth. If it's a thin, like if it's got a lot of open weave and things like that, it's not going to do a lot of good. So a surgical mask is best. K95s are even better, but if it's a cloth mask and it doesn't have a lot of tight weave, then it's, it's better than nothing, but we, rec- we recommend surgical masks. Yeah. yeah. Is there a better, cause I'm trying to get a couple of really good ones to take with me on the road, but really the best thing is just to get those kind of disposable surgical yeah. masks. That's yep. what I wear every day. That's um, what I wear. Every I go to Costco and get yep. a box every couple of months and I just keep them in my car. Cause I have to wear a mask right. long at work. And yeah. I just get a new one for like it's in my passenger side seat. I just get a new one every day, put it on, yeah. throw it away at the end of the day. And I feel comfortable with that. Yeah, I do. Yeah. Too. I hear a lot of people. I mean, I've heard, I've heard some people say, you know, it's not healthy for people to wear a mask all day, but I mean, every year <laughs> we've been doing it for decades. I mean, yeah. Healthcare Operating group staff. Yeah. 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 So yeah. if you're comfortable with your surgeon wearing a mask while they're operating on you, then I think we should be okay going to the grocery store in a mask. You know, oh, exactly. Agreed. You think about that. Good, good, great information. Yeah. Um, wow. I just miss seeing people smiling faces. <laughs> you like what? That. I miss seeing people smiling faces. I know. <laughs> I know. I bet that's hard. I know. Uh, who knows? Who knows what we're going to be dealing with? I know that COVID's probably something we are going to have to be dealing with for a while. It's not going to go away in the next couple of months, clearly. But uh, hopefully, uh, science and people like you guys are going to get us through this, and we're going to be able to eventually get it down where it's like a cold. I love that positive thinking. Anything else you two want to say? I just want to say I'm, thanks to you and Susie for oh, letting me be yeah. part of this conversation. Same. Oh, man. Yeah, this was fun. You know, I think it's, uh, we're doing the best we can to try to get good information out there. And like you said, social media is not the place to get our information. It's from trusted people and your doctor. We can't, you know, say that enough. Talk to your doctor. And um, I don't know, we may have to have you back, go, both back on here in a few <laughs> minutes, in a few months, but hopefully not. Hopefully not. Yeah. Thank you girls so much. I, I appreciate you both. And um, uh, we'll you. talk to you soon. Thanks so much. Y'all have a great day. Thanks. You Thanks. Too. Bye. Bye. Well, I cannot thank them enough for offering their time and their expertise today. I learned a lot. I know you guys learned a lot. So I'm really glad that they were willing to come do this episode. I think the main takeaway I got from the conversation is that 
We are all individuals with different bodies, different symptoms, etc. So the best thing to do if you get COVID or you just want to combat getting COVID is talk to your doctor about his or her recommendations for you. If you trust your doctor to treat your other illnesses, then trust them for this as well, please. Okay, so because this episode went longer, I didn't end with my season two questions. and I'm regretting that now because I know they would have had some awesome answers. Dang it. Oh, well, maybe I'll just have to have them back another time and I'll ask them then. But that's it for the show today. I'll be coming at you from the road or the bus, (laughs) probably from the bus for the next three weeks. So things should get a little interesting on my end. But I hope you'll tune in again next week. And please, if you can, if you find these podcasts valuable, if you can um, donate on our website, which is godandmygirlfriendsonline.com, or just go right and review us. That is so huge for us. We need those ratings and reviews so that people can find us. It'll put us higher in the algorithms or whatever that means. <laughs> so until next week, thank you guys for tuning in. Thanks to Amy and Susie. Everyone stay safe and be well. Yeah.